This is Space Time, Series 22, Episode 31, for broadcast on the 24th of April, 2019. Coming up on Space Time, astronomers capture the first ever direct image of a black hole. Scientists determine the planet Mercury has a solid inner core. And Israel to try, try again, following the failure of its Genesis lunar lander. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have successfully captured one of the most important pictures in scientific history, an actual image of a supermassive black hole. The astonishing breakthrough was announced in a series of six papers published in a special issue of the Astrophysical Journal Letters and at a series of coordinated special press conferences held simultaneously around the globe. Black holes are the most intense gravity wells in the universe regions of infinite density in zero volume, where the gravitational pull is so strong, nothing, not even light, can escape. Stars, planets, gas clouds and other matter are attracted to a black hole by its intense gravity, swirling around the black hole in an accretion disk, like water going around a sink drain. Material in the accretion disk is crushed, stretched and ripped apart at the subatomic level, releasing vast amounts of energy reaching billions of degrees at close to the speed of light, before eventually passing beyond a point of no return called the event horizon. Once inside the event horizon, escape velocity becomes greater than the speed of light, and since nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, nothing, not even light, can escape a black hole. Here, matter is spaghettified as it falls forever into the singularity, a place where the laws of physics, time and dimension, as science understands them, breaks down. But not all of the material on the accretion disk is destined to fall into the black hole. Some of the superheated matter is deflected along powerful magnetic field lines, away from the event horizon and out towards the black hole's spin axis, where it's accelerated to relativistic speeds and focused into intense superluminal jets called quasars, which are the brightest known objects in the universe, shining out like beacons in the dark, visible over 13 billion light-years away. Small stellar mass black holes are formed by the death of some of the most massive stars in the universe in powerful core-collapse supernova explosions or through events such as neutron star mergers. Meanwhile, supermassive black holes, which are millions to billions of times larger, are found at the centres of most, if not all, galaxies. Exactly how they're formed remains a matter of intense debate. The historic image released this month shows a supermassive black hole at the centre of an elliptical galaxy known as Messier 87, located some 53.49 million light-years away in the Virgo cluster. This monster black hole has some 6.5 billion times the mass of the Sun. By their very nature, a black hole cannot be seen. However, the hot accretion disk of material encircling it shines brightly, and this new image shows the bright orange-coloured accretion disk surrounding the darkest of black centres, a deep hole which literally reaches outside the universe. Mind you, this black centre isn't the black hole itself, or even the event horizon surrounding it. It's simply a region where light is bent so much, it casts a shadow extending out from the event horizon. 
the event horizon itself is around two and a half times smaller than the shadow it's casting, measuring just under 40 billion kilometres across. But this shadow of a black hole is the closest that science can come to an image of a black hole itself, this completely dark object from which light cannot escape. What astronomers have done for this image is pick up the radiation emitted by particles within the secretion disk as they swirl around the black hole before passing beyond the event horizon. The resulted image looks like a halo crescent with a shadow of the black hole's event horizon in the centre. The halo appearance is caused by the immense gravity of the black hole bending light into a halo around it. One side of the halo's crescent looks brighter than the other because the particles on that side of the accretion disk are rotating towards the Earth and so are flung towards us faster and therefore appear brighter. While the particles on the other side of the halo crescent are rotating away from our viewpoint and so appear slightly dimmer. Black holes were first predicted by Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity, although Einstein himself was somewhat sceptical as to whether or not they actually existed in real life. Of course, since then, astronomers have accumulated overwhelming evidence that these cosmic gravitational wells are out there, including recent detections of gravitational waves rippling across the cosmos when pairs of black holes collide. The image was captured in radio wavelengths using the Event Horizon Radio Telescope Very Long Baseline Interferometer. It's a combination of eight separate radio observatories spread across the planet and electronically linked to act as a single giant telescope as big as the Earth. This allows the telescope to achieve an angular resolution of 20 micro arc seconds. That's enough to read a newspaper in Sydney or New York from a cafe in Perth or Paris. When the observations were launched back in 2017, the Event Horizon Telescope had two primary targets. One was M87, the other Sagittarius A-star, the black hole at the centre of our own Milky Way galaxy, located some 26,000 light-years away, with a mass of about 4.3 million suns. The collaboration is still working on producing an image of the Milky Way's black hole, and when it comes, we'll certainly let you know. Overall, more than 200 astronomers from 20 countries have been involved in this project. One of the most amazing things about this image is that it is so similar to what earlier computer models predicted a black hole might look like. And what that means is that astronomers' current theories and models about black holes and their physical properties must be reasonably accurate. The plan now is to take all that knowledge to the next level with even more detail and higher resolution. We have gone straight to the edge of the event horizon and seeing the point of no return. The past two decades, a global collaboration of scientists around the Earth have been putting together an Earth-sized telescope with a single purpose, to image a black hole. And now we have done so. Right, we have done something extraordinary. We've made the first picture of a black hole. If you want to make a test of the fundamental theories of the universe. You want to go to the most extreme laboratories in the universe, and a black hole is that. This is an extraordinary moment in science. It's the best verification that we have that black holes aren't just theoretical scribblings on a blackboard, musings of theoretical physicists, but real entities roaming the universe. We all understand from a mathematical point of view that black holes exist, but to actually see something is a very visceral experience and I think important for science and also for us to believe in it. The black hole that we've imaged is M87. This is a behemoth. It's a black hole that's six and a half billion times as massive as our sun. 
and it sits in the center of a galaxy a hundred times larger than our Milky Way, which itself lives at the center of a cluster of thousands of galaxies, Virgo. They are quite literally gravity run amok, a key window into one of the least understood and yet most omnipresent forces that we are all faced with, gravity. This provides the first time that we're able to study in detail the stage that gravity sets for astronomical phenomena. I think we've been extremely lucky. I'd expected that we have to work for years and years to do many observations until we get a final image. And then we look at our first source and we see that ring. We see the event horizon and we see that shadow, that dark region. And you know immediately we're looking at an event horizon at a black hole from all sides at once in this, this thing. We see at a region where time stops. This is a very different part of the universe that we're seeing for the very first time. The most striking feature in these images is the footprint of gravity. This ring-like feature with a central dark depression, the shadow of the black hole. That region where the photons that we see would have had to have come from below the horizon, now therefore absent. It's amazing to be able to work on data which have never been obtained before. To have highest resolution observations, uh, this is a unique time for a scientist in his or her life to work on these kind of data. So to work, to see into an area which, where, where we didn't have any information before. This first image doesn't represent the end of an endeavor, but rather the beginning of an era in which we have a new key window onto how gravity behaves and how it shapes our universe. The future of this project is amazing. Now we want to make the first movie. Now we want to understand how space-time rotates around the black hole. We'll do that by putting more telescopes around the world to make our virtual lens even better. It signals the beginning of this new era in which we can study the life and times of these extraordinary objects in a way that was simply impossible before. One of the most uplifting things for me is the team that we've built and the fact that we're doing something that people have told us was impossible. And when you, at the end of the day, do something that people tell you you can't do, it's an incredible feeling. And I think the whole team is very, very proud that we've accomplished something like this. It's not just for us, it's for everyone. And there you heard the voices of Avery Broderick from the Perimeter Institute and the University of Waterloo, Shepard Dolman from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, Sarah Markoff from the University of Amsterdam, Hino Falk from Radboud University in the Netherlands, and Silky Britson from the Max Planck Institute. This is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Scientists have determined that the planet Mercury has a solid metallic inner core, similar in size to the planet Earth. The findings, reported in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, helps astronomers better understand Mercury, while at the same time offering clues about how the solar system formed and how rocky terrestrial planets evolve over time. Astronomers have long known that the Earth and Mercury both have metallic cores. Like Earth, Mercury's outer core is composed of liquid metal, but there have only been hints that Mercury's innermost core is solid. Now, in a new study, scientists have reported evidence that Mercury's inner core is indeed solid, and that it's very nearly the same size as the Earth's solid inner core. 
Some scientists have compared Mercury to a cannonball because its metal core fills nearly 85% of the planet's entire volume. Now, this large core, huge by comparison to all the other rocky planets in our solar system, has long been one of the most intriguing mysteries about Mercury. But scientists had also wondered whether Mercury might have a solid inner core. The study's lead author, Assistant Professor Antonio Genova from the Sapienza University of Rome, says Mercury's inner core is still active, but Mercury's interior has cooled more rapidly than the Earth, and that may help scientists predict exactly how the Earth's magnetic field will change as our planet's core cools. To figure out what Mercury's core is made of, Genova and colleagues had to get, figuratively, fairly close to their subject. To do this, the team used several observations from NASA's MESSENGER spacecraft in order to probe Mercury's interior. MESSENGER entered orbit around Mercury back in March 2011, spending four years observing the nearest planet to the Sun until it was running low on fuel and so deliberately crashed into the planet's surface in April 2015. The authors were looking most importantly at the planet's spin and gravity. The scientists used radio observations from MESSENGER to determine Mercury's gravitational anomalies, that is, areas of local increases or decreases in mass, and the location of the planet's rotational axis, which allowed them to understand the orientation of the planet. Mercury spins much more slowly than the Earth, with an average Mercury day lasting some 58 Earth days. Scientists often use tiny variations in the way an object spins to reveal clues about its internal structure. In 2007, radar observations from Earth revealed small shifts or librations in Mercury's spin, and that proved that some of the planet's core must be liquid molten metal. But the observations of the spin rate alone weren't enough to give a clear measurement of what the inner core would be like. And that kept scientists wondering whether or not there could be a solid core lurking underneath. To help answer that question, the authors examined Mercury's gravity, because that would tell them about the planet's internal density structure. And that's where MESSENGER came in. As MESSENGER orbited Mercury over the course of its mission and got closer and closer to the surface, scientists recorded how the spacecraft accelerated under the influence of the planet's gravity. You see, the density structure of the planet can create subtle changes in the spacecraft's orbit. That's what they were looking for. As the mission came to an end, MESSENGER was flying just 200 kilometers above the planet's surface. And during its final year of operations, that went down to just 100 kilometers. And it was those final low-altitude orbits which provided the best data yet, allowing authors to make the most accurate measurements about the internal structure of Mercury. Genova and colleagues ran the MESSENGER data into a sophisticated computer model. This allowed them to adjust parameters and figure out exactly what the internal composition of Mercury must be like in order to match the way the planet's spinning and the way the spacecraft was accelerating around it. The results showed that for the best match, Mercury needs to have a large solid inner core. They estimated that this solid iron inner core would be some 2,000 kilometers wide, making up about half of Mercury's entire 4,000 kilometer wide core. Now, by contrast, the Earth's inner core is about 2,400 kilometers across, but that's only a little more than a third of our planet's entire core. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. The European Space Agency's next exoplanet mission to study strange worlds orbiting distant stars has moved a step closer to launch, with the spacecraft now fully assembled and tested. The characterising exoplanet satellite, or CHEOPS, has now finally left the clean room in Switzerland and is now in Madrid for further launch preparations. 
Cheops is slated to fly during a launch window in October and November this year aboard a Soyuz STB rocket from the European Space Agency's Kourou spaceport in French Guiana. The three-and-a-half-year mission will study the formation of exoplanets using a specialised telescope mounted on a standard small satellite platform, flying in a sun-synchronous orbit at an altitude of around 700 kilometres. CHEOPS will examine hundreds of known transiting exoplanets, orbiting both nearby stars and more distant bright ones. It'll measure the dip in light caused by a planet as that planet passes in front of its host star as seen from the satellite. This will allow scientists to accurately measure the radius of exoplanets for which ground-based spectroscopic observations have already given reasonably good mass estimates. Knowing both the mass and size of an exoplanet lets scientists determine the planet's density and thus estimate its general composition, whether it's a terrestrial planet like the Earth or a water world or maybe a gas giant. This will allow scientists to learn more about these strange worlds orbiting distant stars. Cheops should be especially good for spotting shallow transits and for determining accurate radii for known exoplanets in the super-Earth to Neptune mass range, which includes objects of between 1 and 6 Earth radii. The 300kg spacecraft was built by the University of Bern and uses solar panels that also act as part of its sun shield, providing 60 watts of continuous power for its instruments, which will be downloading at least 1.2 gigabits of data every day. This progress report on the CHEOPS mission comes from ESA Television. Hundreds of known planets orbiting stars outside our solar system will soon be under scrutiny by a space telescope called CHEOPS, a characterising exoplanet satellite. And its scientists want answers to a number of questions. We want to know what these planets are made of. We want to know how hot they are. We want to know their atmospheric composition structure. We want to know the surface temperature. We want to know if there's water there and eventually if there's life. Now in Madrid for further launch preparations, the telescope houses two mirrors, a CCD detector or camera and a baffle to reduce stray light. Cheops will measure the minute dip in light from a star when a planet transits across it. The size of the dip provides a direct measure of the ratio of the size of the planet and the star. This, combined with a knowledge of the size of the star, gives the planet's size. Radial velocity measurements from ground observatories will supply its mass. When you have the mass and the radius, you have two very important things about uh, an object because you can get what we call the mean density after that. And that can give you a lot of information about the composition of a planet. For example, it can immediately tell you whether the planet is mainly formed of gas or if it's a rocky planet. The challenge was to build an extremely accurate and stable telescope that blocked signals caused by stray light from its electronics and instruments. The telescope will therefore be kept at minus 10 degrees C and the detector at minus 40 degrees to reduce signal noise. What makes uh, Keops unique? It's the only follow-up mission. So we are not aiming at discovering new planet. We are just aiming at going back to the ones we know and measure their size, either for the first time because it hasn't been measured yet, or improve the measurement that have been done in the past, either from the ground or from a space telescope with less precision. The CHEOPS science team is currently selecting the best target exoplanets for further study. Other scientists will also be invited to submit proposals to use the space telescope. 
Then, once the science mission is operational, a new era of discovery can begin. CHEOPS Principal Investigator Vili Bent and CHEOPS Instrument Scientist Andrea Fortier, both from the University of Bern and assigned to ESA. I'm Stuart Gary. You're listening to Space Time. Well, despite much hope, the private Israeli bid to land a spacecraft on the surface of the moon has failed. Like the proverbial phoenix rising from the ashes, supporters from around the world have now rallied around the company Space Isle, determined to try again. The tragic end for the dream came when the Beersheet, or Genesis spacecraft's main engine, suddenly cut out just 149 metres above the lunar surface following an apparent communications glitch. Mission managers scrambled to restart the engine, but by then it was too late and the 585-kilogram probe crashed into the grey, dusty lunar soil. The spacecraft had launched just over six weeks earlier aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket on a mission to make Israel only the fourth nation on Earth after the Soviet Union, the United States and China to successfully land on the lunar surface. Mission managers used a process called orbital raising to gradually increase the spacecraft's orbit around the Earth until it's large enough to also encompass the Moon. Using this orbital raising method instead of a direct lunar transfer manoeuvre has become the preferred way of reaching the Moon for robotic missions because it uses less fuel, but it takes about seven weeks rather than just the three days of a direct flight. On April 4th, following a journey of some 6.5 million kilometres, the spacecraft was captured by the Moon's gravity and began orbiting the Moon in preparation for the final leg of its mission down to the lunar surface. Its final 32-second orbital burn on April 10th manoeuvred the spacecraft into an elliptical orbit, taking it to within 15 to 17 kilometres of the Moon's desolate surface. Its final descent down onto the Sea of Serenity, a 674-kilometre-wide basaltic lava plain, should have gone smoothly. Instead, communications was lost, the main engine suddenly cut out, and the spacecraft crashed into the surface. Had it succeeded, the mission would have studied the Moon's magnetic field and placed a laser navigation retroreflector onto the surface for NASA. As well as its scientific payload, the spacecraft was also carrying a digital time capsule with over 30 million pages of data and millions of documents from around the world. Included were dictionaries and encyclopedias, including a full copy of the English-language Wikipedia, a copy of the Judeo-Christian Bible, examples of fine literature and artworks, children's drawings, the memories of a Holocaust survivor, Israel's national anthem, the Hatikvah, an Israeli flag, and a copy of the Israeli Declaration of Independence. Space AL chairman Moritz Kahn says he won't let the dream go. He's one of the many philanthropists joining forces and offering to fund a second private attempt by Space AL to land a spacecraft on the moon. In the light of all the support that I've got from all over the world and the wonderful messages of support and encouragement and excitement, I've decided that we're going to actually build a new spacecraft, we're going to put it on the moon and we're going to complete the mission. Tomorrow morning, first thing, we have a task force to begin to sit down and plan the project and begin the work. Thank you, and good luck to all of us. That's Morris Kahn, the chairman of Space IL. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. In a major medical breakthrough, scientists at Tel Aviv University have printed the world's first 3D vascularized engineered heart using a patient's own stem cells and biological materials. 
Their findings, reported in the journal Advanced Science, represents the first time anyone anywhere has successfully engineered and printed an entire human heart, replete with cells, blood vessels, ventricles and chambers. The 3D heart was small, only the size of a rabbit's heart, but the researchers say larger human hearts will use the exact same technology. Until now, scientists in regenerative medicine have only been successful in printing relatively simple tissues without blood vessels. For this research, a biopsy of fatty tissue was taken from a patient. The cellular and acellular materials of the tissue were then separated. While the cells were reprogrammed to become pluripotent stem cells, the extracellular matrix, a three-dimensional network of extracellular macromolecules such as collagen and glycoproteins, were processed into a personalized hydrogel which served as the printing ink. After being mixed with the hydrogel, the cells were efficiently differentiated into cardiac or endothelial cells to create patient-specific immune-compatible cardiac patches with blood vessels and subsequently an entire heart. Well, if you're planning on taking a Swiss holiday and getting in a bit of skiing, it's best to do it now while you still can. See, new research warns that some 4,000 European alpine glaciers will lose at least half their ice by 2050. The findings, reported in the journal The Cryosphere, are a midway estimate of what's expected, even if humans were to dramatically cut carbon dioxide emissions immediately. Scientists say what happens after 2050 depends on how much people change the climate. Even under a limited warming scenario, Europe's glaciers would still lose about two-thirds of their ice, while under strong global warming, the Alps will be almost completely ice-free by 2100. Now, while we're talking about the weather, NASA says an El Nino, which began forming late last year, has now finally matured and is now fully entrenched across the Pacific Ocean. Warmer-than-average sea surface temperatures brought about by an El Nino enhance convection-forming clouds and storms in the eastern Pacific, resulting in distinctive changes in rainfall patterns across the entire Pacific Basin. That means generally dry weather across Australia and the western Pacific, while the Americas and eastern Pacific experience above-average rainfall. However, interestingly enough, recent estimates of monthly average rainfall and corresponding rainfall anomalies have shown heavy rain and above-average rainfall located across the equatorial central Pacific, not the eastern Pacific. That's what's known as the El Nino Medoki, Japanese for a similar but different thing, where an enhanced sea surface temperatures and rainfall occur nearer the international dateline rather than Peru. The human family tree has grown another branch, with the discovery of a previously unknown hominin species in a cave on the island of Luzon in the Philippines. Bones and teeth from at least two adults and a child have been found, suggesting the newly found hominin dating back some 50,000 years was smaller than the average modern human and had curved digits, meaning it might have been adept at climbing trees. Paleontologists say the hand and feet bones are remarkably australopithecine-like. Australopithecines last walked on Earth in Africa about 2 million years ago. They're considered to be the ancestor of all the Homo group, which includes Homo sapiens or modern humans. Paleontologists involved in the dig, including scientists from the Australian National University and Griffith University, have named the new species Homo luzonensis. In 2004, another group announced the discovery of a different ancient human species, Homo floriensis, also known as the Hobbit, on the Indonesian island of Flores. A new study warns that pet cats that are allowed to roam free outdoors are nearly three times as likely to be infected with pathogens as those cats that are kept indoors only. The findings, reported in the journal Biology Letters, suggested the bacterial or viral infections that outdoor cats pick up were likely to develop into illnesses regardless of whether they were caught via touch, saliva or from the air. 
So not only should you keep your pet kitty cat inside to protect the local wildlife, but you'll also be protecting Fluffy as well. Australia's Therapeutic Goods Administration has flagged a number of changes to its list of claims which promoters of alternative medicine can make about their products. However, as Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics points out, the TGA has continued to ignore many more that are blatantly unsupported and pseudoscientific. Permissible indications is what you can have on the label of your medical product saying what it works with. Yeah, this will cure a headache or treat headache, that sort of thing. The trouble is they put out a draft list of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these indications that were nominated by a whole range of people, including the traditional Chinese medicine people and the Ayurvedic, which is the Indian traditional medicine people. And some of the things that they put forward were, to put it mildly ludicrous, balance yin and yang, release exterior, that's it, release exterior, disinhibit water, whatever that means. All these sort of very, very strange things. They're very vague descriptors and from a medical point of view. They really mean nothing. Is that what yeah. we're talking about here? That's exactly what we're talking about, especially with a lot of these Chinese uh, medicine things, is they are talking vague terms of treatment about vague conditions, right? And they are so open-ended that they could apply to anything. Harmonize the middle burner, unblock meridians, soothe the flow of stomach chi, replenish essence. These are just sort of nonsense phrases. They certainly don't fit in medicine, and that's what the Therapeutic Goods Administration is supposed to be about. And their list was derided when it came out in 2017. Everyone said, you've got to be kidding. This stuff is nonsense, and you're including it as possible, sort of, you know, as, as endorsed treatments for conditions that are sort of vague treatments of vague conditions. They have had a revision of it just recently, and they have deleted seven of them because they say they're not supported, leaving 71 Ayurvedic and 135 traditional Chinese ones. So they're a hell of a lot of nonsense on this list that people can claim on the labels of their products that the TGA is basically walking away from. And the TGA is supposed to be the guardian of what's a reliable product and what's not a reliable product, certainly as far as how it's advertised. And it's a constant battle with the TGA that you're saying, please do your job. Please show that some of this stuff is rubbish. What is it about the Therapeutic Goods Administration? Is it just that they're trying to promote small business to such an extent that they're letting proper medical and drug standards disappear? There are some obvious issues with it, and I'm not saying this is necessarily influencing what they do, but they are paid for largely by the industry. Oh. Okay. Yeah. If you want to develop a conspiracy theory, which I do not like conspiracy theories, but certainly there is a limitation there on how they get their money. The government funding is sort of has been sort of withdrawn over a period of years. Therefore, they are relying on, on the industry to fund them. Their job is to uh, assess advertising by and large to make sure that no one's sort of going overboard and people do all the time. They're making unreasonable claims. The trouble is the TGA is really under-resourced. They say so themselves and therefore trying to get people to assess claims on medicines on medical products and there are different sorts that the TGA covers is almost impossible. The suppliers know that they're unlikely to be checked by the TGA. They probably check 10% of products that might be out there and when they check that 10% of products or they ask them where's the evidence for your claim, they find that about 90% don't have any. So what happens then is that the product person who's supplying that product will just change the name of the product and you've got to start again. So I mean the TGA really does not investigate by any means the vast number of products that are out there. People can to it and they are very slow to respond or they are very dismissive of complaints that are made about the products that the TGA endorses or have it on their list and, and also they just don't have the time. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from spacetimewithstuartgary.com or from your favourite podcast download provider.
Space Times also broadcasts coast to coast across the United States on Science 360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. and available around the world on TuneIn Radio. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.